Welcome to the Low Carb Leader Podcast, a podcast focused on optimizing health and performance through a low carb lifestyle. Every episode will bring you a step closer to living an amazing low carb life. Come join us for this exciting journey. And here is your low carb leader and host, Dan Perryman. Hello, and welcome to the Low Carb Leader Podcast. I am your host, Dan Perryman, and you are joining me for episode 77. If you have been following the podcast, you know that I've kind of been sketchy lately. Over the last six months to nine months, uh, I've been working on some other things, and I actually have not completed the podcast in a timely fashion, so I've been taking huge breaks, and time has got away from me, and now I am back, and I plan on publishing podcast every week. So if you are still with me, I hope that I didn't lose a bunch of you, then the podcast is coming back and it will probably be the same format as before. And I want to apologize because I've been a little scattered brain with the podcast. I was going to change the name, I was going to change the format, and then getting some feedback from others, I realized that I'm just going to stick with the name, the low carb leader, because that makes a lot of sense. So thank you for sticking with me. And I hope to have some really good episodes, do some great interviews and mix it up a little bit. So I will be focusing on low carb as always, but my latest passion is definitely keto. So I am happy to announce that I have a new keto group and it's on Facebook. It's called the Keto Leader. If you want to join that group, you can go to facebook.com forward slash groups, forward slash the keto leader. And there's a lot of cool stuff on there. A lot of interviews, a lot of postings. There's a unit section. You you will get pretty much everything that you would get from a paid membership site, but it's all for free. So I just want to provide value around the keto lifestyle. And it, we kind of preach a not a real lazy keto, but there's ways to stay in ketosis and you know, have a social life as well. So we talk a lot about that. So uh, check out that group. Since it has been quite a while since the last episode came out, I think I'm just going to post the entire episode with Ivor Cummins. Uh, he, he is a co-author with Jeffrey Gerber, MD, and they wrote the book Eat Rich, Live Long, Use the Power of Low Carb and Keto for Weight Loss and Great Health. And I've read a lot of books, and this book is really awesome when it comes to low carb and keto. Well, well done, well written book. And I can't say enough good things about it. This is probably one of my top books for sure. And I'm going to read it a bunch of times again. So bear with me and I will just post the entire interview. And that way you don't have to go back and listen to the first part. I am very happy to be back and I look forward to publishing these podcasts again. All right. Enjoy the interview with Ivor Cummins. We have an awesome guest today, Ivor Cummings, just wrote a book, and uh, we're going to be talking about the book, but we're also going to be talking about his background and why he became interested in low-carb and keto and everything else. So the name of his book is Eat Rich, Live Long. Welcome, Ivor Cummings. Thanks a lot, Tom. Great to be here. All right. Rather than uh, reading your bio, which is pretty impressive, but why don't you take us through your background, and how you became interested in this movement. Right. Well, originally, uh, I generally ate healthy. I 
you know, I'm 50 years of age this December, but generally ate healthier, at least I thought I was eating healthy, you know, healthy whole grains and not eating too much fat. Uh, but several years ago, in 2012, I got some routine blood tests uh, prior to having an operation for a, a bicycle accident. And uh, a few of the metrics came up really, really high. Uh, so serum ferritin and the liver enzyme, GGT, and the cholesterol was high also. Uh, so basically, in my day job, I'm a professional problem solver in engineering. I originally did a biochemical engineering degree. So I've been a manager and a kind of a team leader for decades in engineering complex problem solving. So when I saw these really poor blood tests and discussed them with the doctor, I noticed that I was way above the population average. Uh, and I knew instinctively, even though I didn't understand those tests deeply at this point, I realized they're really high. There's got to be a reason for that. So long story short, the doctor tried to explain to me uh, what the reason might be and what the implications for future health were. And basically, the doctor didn't explain very well, very unconvincing. Um, so I went to another doctor and I grilled them. Uh, interrogated them and again very disappointing and a third doctor so I realized then look I've got five children I'm interested in health uh, I'm gonna have to find out what this means so I went and I researched myself back to the actual literature PubMed ResearchGate I had corporate logons to all the, the data and uh, I began to research it and within a few weeks I narrowed down to carbohydrate metabolism essentially so I realized that all the healthy whole grains I was eating, uh, I was a, a fiend for fruit, fruit juice, you know, five a day. I used to like juice and drank quite a bit of that. And uh, I was eating a low-fat diet. And I found out that my liver problems, my elevated serum ferritin, all of these things connected into excessive carbohydrate in the diet. All right. So going back, you just turned 50 in December. So did I. So when's your birthday? I want to see who's older. I'm 50 on the 29th of December coming next December. Oh, okay. I turned I turn 50 on December 3rd. So, uh, well, you're yeah. looking young anyway. That's for I, sure. I, I was going to say you are too. Well, yeah. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, so a little bit about your background. So biochemical engineering. So kind of describe about what, what did you study there in that program? Right. Well, in second year in the chemical engineering course, you had a choice to do biochemical or classic chemical. And the main difference with the biochemical is you did a couple of years of uh, the chemistry of life was the primary text. So you went through all of metabolism, all the proteins, uh, you know, the citric acid cycle, and basically a high level uh, with some depth view of all of human metabolism, the biochemistry of the human machine. Uh, incidentally, it was my favorite subject bar none in the four years in college, uh, so I scored pretty high in it. Uh, but then for 20 years, I worked in you know, process industry and microelectronics and fluidics, so I never actually used a lot of that knowledge. Um, so it lay dormant. Uh, but then when I got my blood test problem, I got the latest edition of The Chemistry of Life, and I can recommend it for people. It's uh, Dr. Stephen Rose on the fourth edition, The Chemistry of Life fantastic uh, biochemistry book for the, you know, someone who's not already an expert. Going back to your comment, we're going to, we're going to kind of walk through uh, different aspects of your book, but mm. I thought that five servings of fruit or fruit juice per day was recommended. 
It most certainly is recommended, <laughs> but then the food pyramid is also still recommended. And amusingly, Dan, they're slightly morphing the food pyramid. So the ridiculous food pyramid with the six to 11 servings of whole grains and breads and pasta, that's slightly changing now. And they're beginning to back away from uh, the kind of bad signs. But it's still a heavily carb food pyramid. And the guidelines still generally say 50 to 60% carbohydrate and limit the fat. Um, so the vegetables, I found out, above ground leafy vegetables, cruciferous vegetables, low starch vegetables, bring some benefits. Uh, but fruit juices and excessive fruit all year round, obviously, are bringing in way too much easily digestible carb uh, and causing a lot of problems, especially in conjunction with fat. So uh, I'd question those guidelines. <laughs> yeah, so uh, so Ansel Keys, you know, I've, I've described this study to some of my friends and, and they think like I'm kind of crazy because of this, this uh, the, the whole seven country study and how that was kind of, I, I don't want to use the word manipulated, but maybe that's the right word. So kind of talk about Ansel Keys and then in your book, you talk about the way that the truth is kind of twisted, right? So how are we so off base with our diet? And kind of, so kind of take us through the Ansel Keys part of it and then lead into where we are now. Right. Okay, Dan. Well, we did in the first part of the book, we wanted to make the book addressable or accessible to ordinary people and also to uh, medical practitioners. My co-author, Dr. Jeff Gerber, particularly wants medical professionals who are not low carb and who, who don't fully understand nutrition uh, to be able to access this book and learn. But the first section, we went through a few chapters to quickly go through that story. So very briefly, Yes, uh, many, many decades ago, they knew cholesterol was implicated in heart disease. They knew that cholesterol was in the atherosclerotic plaques, the atheroma in the arteries. Um, they had a bit of a correlation that higher cholesterol seemed to be a risk factor for heart disease, uh, but they didn't really understand it. So there was a lot of this history of knowing there was something up with cholesterol, uh, and high cholesterol seemed to be a problem. Now, Ansel Keys took this and, and brought it into hyperdrive uh, because he believed that the high cholesterol was certainly causal and he believed that excessive fat in the diet drove higher cholesterol and hence drove heart disease. So I think you referred to his studies there. The first one was the six country study. Six, six country, yeah. Yeah, that, that was the initial one. And that was just a confection. That was, it was a bit of fluff. It, it was a joke to a scientist nowadays. It was just he picked six countries with their percentage of saturated fat and their uh, incidence of heart disease. And he got a straight line, more fat in the diet, more heart disease. And the classic uh, understanding now is he chose six countries out of 22. But if you looked at all 22, there was no real correlation. And also sugar in the diet correlated as strongly. But he dismissed that and wasn't interested because his belief system was it was the fat. So he was biased in his beliefs. So the six countries was kind of laughed at by many uh, top researchers because it was just a correlation and cherry-picked countries. But Ansel was a very powerful character and he did not give up. Rather than questioning his own work and realizing that he kind of screwed up with this big claim from a correlation, he drove ahead and organized the seven country study. Now here he tracked the people for many, many years. He essentially chose 
similar countries, a couple are different, but he would have known, and here's what the bias is, he would have known in advance how it was going to turn out. So it's a little bit like the six countries. He kind of knew that these countries would line up quite well with his theory. And again, they were chosen countries. So if you want to look at fat and heart disease and cholesterol, you must look within a country, you know, at the amount of fat eaten by individuals versus heart disease. It'll still be a correlation, but at least it won't be confounded by the different things in different countries, their degree of industrial development, their, their sugar consumption, their refined carbohydrate consumption, all these confounders, if you do a multi-country study, are almost laughable now. Uh, but my favorite bit about Ansel Keys, if you cut right through the whole story and you bring his kind of 70s junk study, the seven countries, and bring it up to the modern day, what if you did a proper version of Ansel Keys' study with 18 countries? And instead of Ansel's 12,000 men, men only, you actually used maybe 130,000 men and women. And you looked at modern analytics. Well, the beauty is, last year, the Pure study was released, which is exactly what I described, a massive upgrade of Ansel's study. And hey presto, it came to the opposite conclusions. So what it showed in summary was how more fat in the diet was certainly not bad. It trended lower in heart disease and it was actually significantly lower in stroke. But the higher carbohydrate percentages in the diet correlated with increasing mortality. So that's the final word on Ansel studies. They were junk and the modern high-tech large similar studies reverse his findings. But Ivor, like we're about the same age and, and I take it you grew up in Ireland, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Right? And and I grew up in the US and I've I've seen that graph where as soon as as soon as we switched as a the world, the countries to low fat, high carb, margarine, the whole grow up, you know, wake up and eat your cereal and the obesity rate just skyrocketed. Uh, you know, probably you as well. When I was a kid, uh, nobody was overweight. I mean, and I say this, there was always that, and I hate to use the word fat, but there was always that kind of one fat kid in your school, right? There were, everybody was skinny. And now you, now you look around and, you know, we're both, it seems, in shape. And I hear a lot of, a lot of people will say, Dan, you need, to, you need to gain some weight. You're, you're too thin. But in comparison relative to other people or the world, um, thin people kind of stand out now, right? Yeah, we're weirdos now. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Absolutely. There's so much in what you just said, Dan. I mean, Mike Eads and, and Gary Tubbs have brought up this similar point that if you look back uh, at photos from the 50s, 60s, even 70s, the rock concerts, you know, the, the school graduation photos, it's dramatically different. And exactly as you say, when I was growing up, there, there's the odd kind of very overweight young kid and, and they got an awful time because they right. really stood out. Uh, but nowadays... I was most struck, I think, I began to really notice, notice that around 2002 or three, I was living in an area and I noticed the kids going to school. And I just realized they're all, almost all overweight and some are really big. 
and I just, it just struck me exactly what you said. And this was before I discovered all this stuff. It just struck me. That's weird. How has everyone got fat? And the kids, they all got fat. And to an engineer, a, a root cause problem solving specialist, you know when something changes dramatically, uh, there might be multiple causes, by all means, multi-factor, but there's going to be a few big ones. And we call it the Pareto principle. The top 20% of all the causes that caused your mess, uh, they're going to be a few big ones, and then there's going to be smaller stuff. And now I think we, we know what the big ones were. The big argument is refined carbohydrate, pure sugars, vegetable oils. If they're hovering around the top problem, um, which of those is the biggest? But I think it's easy to eliminate all three. So you don't even need to know which is the big because you can eliminate all three. Right, right. Yeah, it's amazing. I, I just interviewed a gentleman. Uh, the podcast will be coming out and he he created a keto dog food and he, he spent the last four years researching dogs and obesity. And we have created a society of obese dogs, right? Because 60, 70% of it is carbohydrates in their dog food. And so not only humans, but we've even fattened up our dogs as yeah, a society. And cats. Uh, I have a veterinarian friend and he said the level of diabetes, cat diabetes is incredible. And he said, that's exactly what it is. It's insane. They're feeding them cat foods with carbohydrates and they're carnivores. So with all of his patients, he, he simply gets them to feed them real meat and protein. And uh, he, he pretty much takes away the diabetes. Uh, but that's the problem. We've made our pets fat, ourselves fat. And uh, the root cause is not, is not rocket science, to be honest. The main drivers. Now, people are exercising less. That's not really a big part of it, of course, as you can imagine. It's what you put in your mouth that's the real issue. Right, right. So you mentioned three things, carb, carbohydrates, sugar, and vegetable oils. Which one's worse? Is there a worse one? It, it's, uh, it's very hard to prove, Dan, um, because no one has done the human experiment to increase refined carb a certain amount, and in different people increase sugar, and in different people increase refined vegetable oils, and a mixture of all three. Because really, they've been going after the fat for 50 years. All the research money has been squandered on that, which is unfortunate. So I think the refined carbohydrate through the action of GIP hormone in the gut and hyperinsulinemia over time and liver dysfunction is a great contender. The sugars with fructose, and being refined carb, the ultimate refined carb, similar mechanisms and more, is a very good contender. But the vegetable oils is the interesting one, I think. And more and more, it's beginning to emerge now, if you look through the science, that excessive vegetable oils in their own right are obesogenic. And we deal with the vegetable oils extensively in the book, because I think more people are becoming aware that refined carb and sugar is a problem. I think there's very few people except industry uh, shills who would claim otherwise. But the vegetable oils, there are a lot of animal experiments with vegetable oils. And one of them actually uh, we feature, the title was, uh, let me see what it was. Yeah, it was soy, soybean oil is more obesogenic and diabetogenic than coconut oil and fructose. So the study in animals actually showed that the soybean oil was worse than the saturated coconut oil and even worse than fructose and even combinations. 
So there's a whole series of animal experiments that are not being publicized that show that if you go up to eight to 10% of omega-6 vegetable oils in the diet, in animal models, they're showing it's as bad as sugar and, and saturated fat together, which is fascinating. And there are many mechanisms now which make sense in the human body, how the vegetable oils are processed as to why they would drive obesity. So I think that that's, that's probably the latest new kid in the block. It could be one of the biggest drivers in the last 50 or 60 years. Yeah, yeah, and it's and and these these vegetable oils are in everything. Yeah, you know, I mean, you have to go out of your way to find basically. You almost have to use your own olive oil, you know, because these these oils are in everything. So, well, let's just talk about oils a little bit more. So, what are the bad ones and what are the good ones? Right. Well, we have a simple rule. Uh, so, if they're cold pressed from real like olives, you know, they're essentially a monounsaturated fat, not too high in omega-6, and they're not extracted with hexane and industrial solvents from seeds. So olive oil or coconut oil and palm oil, if they're cold pressed and they're not highly omega-6 dominated, they're generally good oils. And butters can be used for cooking. They're natural, real fats. They're real, essentially real food. If you take the classic vegetable oil, seed oils, and even canola, because canola has been marketed now and pushed as a product for around 15 years. And interestingly, canola was designed to be higher in omega-3 and not so high in omega-6. So you'd say, well, maybe that's better. But the problem is, it's not just the omega-6 excess. Uh, it's also the fact that they're industrially produced. They're heat damaged during their processing. They can take up residence in your cell membranes and be prone to oxidation. So basically, it's very easy. Any industrially processed kind of seed oils, take them off the table, and any cold-pressed, crushed from real food oils, like coconut or palm or, or olive, then consider them real food. Now, the only thing I'd, ex I'd add to that, and I know Dr. Gerber would always uh, mention this too, is excessive eating of oils, even if they're not particularly bad, like the seed oils, you're bringing in very empty calories. Essentially, they're just pure energy without really much nutrition. So again, myself and Jeff have another key overriding rule is everything you eat, just ask the question, is this nutrient dense? Is this full of real food proteins? You know, has it got healthy fats, vitamins and minerals? And if you eat a lot of even healthy oils, generally they're just energy. So ideally, the, the calories you bring in are as nutrient-dense as possible. So that's another reason I wouldn't go crazy on the oils. Right. And, and I know that people who follow like kind of the strict ketogenic diet, they'll, they'll, they feel that you know, with trying to get 80% fat, they try to almost add excess MCT and olive oil and, and just to try to get their, to their macros. But we have our own fat that we can use as energy, right? Exactly. And to be quite honest, the way I look at it simplistically now, without getting into too much depth, uh, I go in and out of keto, but I tend to always do it through fasting. So I eat high fat food with lots of healthy proteins, all real food. And when I want to push the keto, the lever I use is fasting for that exact reason, because it'll burn body fat. It brings a host of benefits and it'll get my fat ratios up without putting energy in that I don't need, like unnecessary oils. 
um, burn my body fat and get into ketosis that way. And the benefits of fasting we're also big into. Not as big as Dr. Jason Fung, maybe, yeah, but yeah. We're, we're big into it. <laughs> Yeah, you know, I've, I intermittent fast and I've, I've done a couple uh, five-day water fasts because Thomas Seafried did this study on like cancer prevention. And, and, uh, but I, I, it's, I'm kind of laughing because uh, just, just the, maybe last week I was, I was taking just 24 hours just doing a fast and, and I, I shared with a friend and I'm like, oh, I'm doing this fast. And he's like, man, that is so bad for you. What are you doing? So you mentioned the benefits of fasting and, and yeah, I, I, I know the benefits of fasting as well, but talk a little bit through, talk a little bit through that of why we should not eat once in a while. Why, oh, why we should occasionally Yeah, why we meals. should fast. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, skipping meals is, is part of our evolutionary heritage anyway. And you know, one interesting thing Jason pointed out was all major religions in the world, there's huge conflicts between them, and they all have massively different ideas. But the only thing common to all of the religions, all the wisdom of, of millennia, is they pretty much all had fasting to enhance mental acuity and for health. And Hippocrates himself called fasting the best medicine. So there's all of this uh, millennia of knowledge that fasting is a powerful medicine and it's great for mental awareness and all these other things, right? So it's interesting that you're right. People say, that's crazy, that's bad for you. But, but that, that's been created over the last few decades, that idea, and there's no science behind it. So fasting um, allows all of your hormones to settle down. So overfeeding, if you take one extreme, elevates insulin, elevates all of the uh, systems of digestion, and it basically, if you overfeed regularly, you will push yourself into obesity and diabetes, etc. Fasting is the opposite of that. For someone who has hyperinsulinemia or insulin resistance, fasting allows all of the hormone levels to drop right down. It also enables autophagy, which is kind of like, I think Rosedale referred to it as a cellular kind of garbage truck cleanup. Right. So you basically use up for fuel old cellular components. And basically, while you're lowering your hormones, you're also burning up old material, and it's regenerative, regenerative as well. So you will create new proteins and new processes while you're using up old material, essentially. Fasting is also excellent for losing weight because essentially, although we don't agree with the calories model, no one can really track their calories perfectly in order to maintain their weight, but calories do matter. So it's a lot, or I find it way better to skip meals and then really enjoy a really good nutrient-dense meal, and you'll savor that meal that comes much more, but you're also cutting out calories without just trying to restrict your calories at every meal, which is a fool's game. So there's that benefit too. I just, and I'm randomly going through them now, but I'll throw in another interesting one. A recent paper, everyone accepts that exercise has neurological benefits and general health benefits. No one would question that. But interestingly, a recent paper demonstrated that the benefits of exercise neurologically are partly caused by beta-hydroxybutyrate during the exercise state. And beta-hydroxybutyrate is what you elevate through fasting. So it shows, and I would say fasting is a form of metabolic workout. 
essentially all of the processes that occur when you fast are very similar to processes that occur when you exercise that are beneficial. And for people who are not so willing to do a lot of exercise, you know, we got to respect that. Some people don't get to it. Fasting actually replicates the biochemical benefits of exercise and many other processes while essentially doing nothing, which right. can appeal to some people. Yeah, I, I, great points. You know, the autophagy part of it just, I mean, intuitively makes so much sense, even if you don't know a lot about fasting. If you just kind of get out of your body's way and let it kind of do what it's supposed to do. But uh, yeah, I mean, that's actually autophagy is like one of the main reasons. Well, that and insulin, you know, to reduce it is the reason I do it. And I've read, though, that uh, autophagy really doesn't start until the 72 hour mark. Is that have you found that or? That, that is certainly, and that's why Siegfried says, you know, a few times a year, do the full five day. And I, I think yeah, there is merit in that, that the processes really get kicked in maybe beyond two days or so. I haven't actually gone beyond 36 hours, would you believe? Uh, and I will at some point. Um, so I think if you really want to get into autophagy or if, say, I had a cancer problem and I really wanted to turn the screws on, I think I'd go there. Um, but for the moment, I feel in conjunction with a really healthy, uh, low carb, healthy fat diet, you know, and doing other things right, like sun exposure, stress management, sleep, you know, vitamins, minerals, magnesium, by doing a lot of things right, I just think 24 to 36 hour fasts are probably enough added to that to keep you in a very healthy state. But I agree, the evidence does show that the major autophagy kicks in you know, at longer periods. Do you, uh, do you take anything while you're fasting, black coffee or tea or anything? I, I actually do. Coffee is controversial. There's talk about coffee disrupting a fast. Um, I haven't seen compelling evidence. I like to have coffee and even a touch of cream in the coffee, and I still consider I'm fasting, just cream to sweeten it, very few calories. Um, so I generally use coffee. So all I'll have, uh, and interesting as well, Dan, if I'm going on for a major event speaking and I want to be at my top performance, I generally 24 to 28 hours before I go on stage, I eat nothing. But I do just have coffees, maybe with a dash of cream. And I find that it's a performance drug is a phrase I used once, fasting. Yeah, I, I agree so much. You know, if, if, you, if you're listening or watching that, this and you haven't fasted and you're thinking, well, I get, I get drained or whatever. Um, I, I experienced the same thing when I don't eat. I just, my mental clarity is better. I can, I can think better. I have more energy. Uh, but I think what some people do, they'll, they'll come off of a high carb diet and then try to fast. And I've actually done that. And that is, I, I wouldn't say the impossible, but it is so much harder than if, being low, low carb and going into a fast because, you know, I almost have to force myself to eat. And I've said this before on the podcast, but I, it'll be three or four o'clock in the afternoon. And I'll be like, Oh, I should probably eat because being low carb, it's just your, your hunger is just so much more reduced. There is indeed. And there's, there's a massive, and that was the thing that struck me back in 2012 when I first discovered this after a few weeks of research, I realized, and I found it hard to believe that, that all the experts have been wrong, but I knew from my research, they had to be wrong. You know, I'd been long enough solving problems, complex problems to know I was right without sounding arrogant. I, I knew I was right from the science, but I couldn't believe they were wrong. 
But one of the first things I was most shocked at was the appetite control for the first time in my adult life. Now, in eight weeks, I lost 35 pounds. Wow. And that was all I needed to lose. And it was eight, nine weeks. And people, after five or six weeks who hadn't seen me, just couldn't believe what they were seeing. But it was easy. And that was the most shocking thing. Once I switched to high healthy fat, low carb, I could control my appetite at will. And then I discovered the benefits of fasting. Long before I actually researched fasting, I realized you felt edgy, energetic. In the afternoon, after 18 hours not eating, or maybe 20 hours, I would go in the afternoon, the other engineers and the managers in the meeting, I'd be way sharper. They've had their lunch, they come in, they're kind of tired in the afternoon. I haven't eaten in 20 hours and I'm, I'm just edgy. I'm almost like, I'm a little too edgy. Right, you know, I'm right. answering everyone back too quick. Extraordinary. And, and people find it hard to believe. And it sounds like woo and it, this sounds crazy to an average person, but it's a fact. And that's simply, it's a fact. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. So let's let's move on to sugar a little bit because so for the for the general population when when we say sugar they're thinking uh you know shakes and junk food and processed food and all that stuff but so comment on that about what that does to your body but then also what about clean carbs that kind of turn into sugar in your body? So if we could talk about both of those like sweet potatoes, rice, that type of stuff that's higher carb um, and what that does. So let's talk about like when you cheat, when you eat a high sugary meal, high carbs, um, what does that do to your body that's good or bad? Yeah, that's a, a good one. Well, in terms of cheating, I'd say, Dan, uh, the problem is if, you're, if you are a low carb person and you stick with it, um, when you do step outside and cheat you'll tend to get a disproportionate rise of glucose in your blood because your insulin response will be relatively low um, your whole system will be keyed up for fat burning and if you suddenly dump glucose in and this is a common thing low carbers can fail glucose tolerance tests and look like they're unhealthy because the insulin response is 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 muted and the blood sugar can jump quite high now High blood sugar spikes are not good news. So I'd say cheating should be minimized because you've set your machine up to be a, a low-carb machine and regularly dumping in sudden boluses of carb will give you big blood sugar excursions. And that's not ideal. So I, I'd minimize the cheating for that reason. Um, if you're going to kind of cheat, I would say, well, sweet potatoes and things like that, and maybe some potatoes with a meal or some rice. I do a bit of that. Um, that, if it's fibrous, like the potatoes, it will tend to go further down your um, ileum and your duodenum, down your intestine. And the big problem with rapidly digestible carbs mainly is GIP hormone in your upper intestine. If you eat rapidly digested carbs, they excite that hormone which excites insulin and also primes your fat cells for storage. But if you eat carbs that are slower release, and this is a cliche, but it's actually true, slower release fibrous carbs will travel further down your intestine, down to your uh, lower levels, and release GLP-1 hormone and PYY, which are appetite controlling and uh, positive effects more so. So I'd use that knowledge um, 
And if anyone wants to, I did interviews with Gabor or Dosi in Hungary and we discuss all of this. If you want to cheat, use fibrous carbs or sweet potatoes that travel down and give some benefits, I'd say. Yeah, I, uh, I, I measured my ketones a lot and blood glucose and all that. And I, I kind of was doing this experiment and, you know, I would like drink a chocolate shake and then do it. And then my, my glucose would rise. But um, Rob Wolf talks about this in his book, too. It's the same way. I, I ate white rice and then measure my blood glucose. And I, you know, I'm, I'm around 70 or 80, typically low carb. And it, it mm. spiked to like 180. Like that's so just a, a little bit of rice. And, and I think what you said is exactly correct because I lived in this low carb world and then I hit, I hit the, hit myself with some fast digesting carbs and it just skyrocketed, which made me diabetic at least for that moment. Right. And so we have to be careful. And in your book, you talk about like most of us have diabetes. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah go ahead. <laughs> It's a provocative term, but I guess what it's based on is, and many doctors or MDs may not realize this, it's on the record published two years ago uh, in a scientific paper that at this point, 52% of adult Americans are pre-diabetic or diabetic. And the point myself and Dr. Gerber would make is pre-diabetic, diabetic is just confusing people. You either have diabetic physiology or you don't. So that means 52% of adult Americans are on the record now as being essentially diabetic. Now, if you mention them with insulin, um, and we did a lot of work on this with, with some people in the field, we guess 65% of adult Americans would have an inappropriate insulin response to glucose. So it's possible two thirds of adult Americans are now essentially diabetic by the best measures. And that's insane because imagine admitting two-thirds of our adult population now have a particular disease state. That's beyond epidemic. And hence the phrase, most of us are, are diabetic. Uh, it's outrageous, but that's the way the data is. Yeah, that's nuts. That is, it's really nuts if you think about it, saying that, you know, 60... You yourself. That's incredible. 60, 70% of, you know, whatever country, maybe the world. I mean, we're... You, you see that these countries that I use the word Americanized because it seems like we have really high obesity here, but they come over here and the studies show, like I read a study that Japanese women, the, the breast cancer rate increases when they come and start eating our type of food and, you know, 60, 70% are now diabetic or pre-diabetic. That's incredible. That's incredible. It's incredible, and, 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 and diabetes, or you can call it type 2 diabetes, you can call it insulin resistance syndrome, metabolic syndrome, all the different names they have to just confuse people, or pre-diabetic. A paper came out recently, it was sent to me, I was surprised I didn't have it, and it said the metabolic syndrome, it is much bigger than you think by a team. I think it was a Canadian team. But essentially what they did was they realized, well, metabolic syndrome has different criteria all over the world. So it's the big waist, the high blood sugar, the low HDL, you know, the high blood pressure. They've got these, if you have three out of five of these criteria, you've got metabolic syndrome. But really, metabolic syndrome is hyperinsulinemia, insulin resistance syndrome, which is type 2 diabetes. So this team went and they looked at all the papers on metabolic syndrome. They got 600. 
they got it down to 50 or 60 where insulin was actually measured because they don't even measure insulin as part of the metabolic syndrome, even though it is the insulin syndrome. It's crazy. And out of those papers, they looked at all the different diseases that were connected to metabolic syndrome. And they looked at when insulin was measured, was insulin an important factor in that paper? And basically around 56 out of 60 papers, insulin showed up as a big important factor. And the diseases were cancer, uh, cardiovascular disease, obviously, heart attacks, um, auto, some autoimmune diseases, uh, and a whole series of other modern chronic diseases. And insulin was sitting in there in nearly every paper as relevant. And they just were saying in the paper, we're not measuring a hyperinsulinemia, and yet it's connected to just about every disease there is. <laughs> right. I, I love the phrase that, you know, food is information rather than it's food is energy, but food is information. That's kind of how I think through things now when, when I'm getting ready to eat, you know, I'm thinking like, what is this doing to me at, at the cellular level? You know, what, what is this providing to my body as information or energy? And, you know, that, that seems to help me choose better food choices because you, you get a chocolate shake from an ice cream place that's not good information. That's, it, might, it might be good energy for like a moment, right? A yeah. moment. That, that food is lying to you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, so exactly. I, I, yeah. yeah, that just kind of helps me think through it. But this is fascinating. But let, I want to talk about your book. So uh, you had all this uh, knowledge. And then what, what made you uh, decide to write a book with Dr. Gerber? Right. Well, uh, the, actually, I began to write a book back in around 15, 2015. Um, and then I got Dr. Gerber on board because uh, I think it's really important. Well, A, he was interested in the project. And it's important to have a, an excellent clinical practitioner as part of the book, because no matter how much research you've done, and he had done similar research to me, um, people will still wonder, yeah, but what would a doctor say? So I asked Jeff, could he come on board? And, and he got into the project full tilt. Uh, but then we got a professional editor and we spent more time researching. And it always seemed like we wanted to do a little more work before we finalized. So eventually it took longer. Uh, but the book really, I had an enormous need back in 2013 when I discovered all of this um, to give lectures to the engineers in my workplace. I put them on YouTube because I was so angry that we'd been lied to for so long, right? And right. it was just crazy, it was insane. So I began to lecture, put them on YouTube, and that's where Jeff Gerber, Dr. Gerber, found me. So he found me through my video, The Cholesterol Conundrum, one of my most well-known lectures on YouTube, and he wanted to collaborate. And eventually that became working together on the book as a, a major vehicle to get the message out there. So another thing is I'm being supported by an Irish entrepreneur, David Bobbitt, and he had a, a near-death experience with cardiovascular disease, and he discovered he had enormous disease through the calcification scan. So he has a passion to get the message out that the calcification scan, the CAC score, is a simple $100 test that measures the disease in your body and it blows away the risk factors in terms of telling you if you have disease. So he supported us with the book to get a professional editor and we got a Victory Belt Publishers. And we also feature in the book 
that technology as well quite highly because if you don't measure it, it don't get fixed. And the calcification scan is the ultimate measure of your disease level to motivate you to fix it with the nutrition where we explain. Yeah, your, your book looks great. Uh, is there, how long did it take you to write it and to get it from, from uh, I, I won't say from concept because that's probably, that happened a long time ago, but once you started actually writing and trying to, and partnering with Dr. Gerber and was it a year or a couple years? It was the first pass back in 15. I, I told my supporter, I can write a book, I think in six months. And I blasted out, I think, 100,000 words book in six months. But it was very raw and very rough and very angry. <laughs> and then, <laughs> as you can imagine. And then what happened was with Dr. Gerber and, and Tom Miller, our professional editor from Carol Mann Agencies in New York, we actually got together and said, okay, we got to write this so it's accessible to people, mainly in the American market, Canada, and we've got to write it professionally. So I'm a pretty good writer, but I was writing from the heart and it was too complex. Long story short, Dan, we spent around a year rewriting it, including a whole load of new research. We got a professional chef, uh, Ryan Turner, to come on board and do 50 plus uh, low carb keto delicious recipes in full color, high definition photos for every one. And we made it into a project to create a really good book that will cover all the science, carb, fat, protein, a chapter on cancer to explain how that links into all of this nutrition and food as information, and fasting and behaviors, environment, and all the vitamins and minerals that are most important and why. And basically get everything into one volume with the recipes professionally done. And I think that's what we've achieved. So we have 150 reviews on Amazon and 99% are five star. There's one or two, three stars. And I, I, I'm happy with that because we put our back into it. Yeah. So the name of the book is Eat Rich, Live Long. Mm -hmm. uh, did you learn anything writing the book? Was there any any discoveries that you made because uh, partnering with a chef and a doctor, but you had a, a strong background yourself. Did you, did you find out anything new or any great discoveries? Well, I, I think really what uh, the learning process for me was being challenged on my level of proof. So my original editor and then Victory Belt's editor went through every single paper referred to and every point I was making and challenged it for clarity. So Aaron was the editor in, um, in Victory Belt and the main person I dealt with and Tom Miller and working through it then they challenged everything where there was not clarity where it was not the flow did not go well where some readers might not quite get what I was saying and challenging the papers I referred to whether they really did back up the point so there's a huge learning in in how to communicate to the masses uh, in terms of uh, actual technical learnings myself and Dr. Jeff we wrangled a lot on the different types of people. So the slim insulin sensitive, the slim insulin resistant, the overweight or obese insulin sensitive and insulin resistant. And we debated a lot, what were the best strategies for those people? Should you focus more on low carb and going really low carb if you have a challenge losing weight? Or should you focus more on fasting and just keep your carb moderately low, but focus on meal skipping and muscle building if you're an insulin sensitive overweight person? And should you go higher protein for appetite management and satiety 
and do more meal skipping for an insulin sensitive person, like we said earlier, you need to burn your body fat. So we debated a lot around that. And I think that's where we came to a common understanding and we described it in the book, the best approach for different types of people in weight loss, because we're mainly focused on heart disease and chronic disease avoidance and longevity. Uh, but we understand that a huge part of the market out there is interested in that. Of course they are, but they really are also fixated on body weight. And that is right. a huge issue. So we really put a lot in there around weight management and weight loss because it's just really important to so many people as well as the longevity and staying healthy and vibrant to your, to your very late decades. Yeah, that's awesome. That's awesome. So in our closing moments, is there any uh, tips you would like to share that so maybe somebody is listening to you for the first time and maybe doesn't really do the low carb lifestyle and what would you recommend? Right. Well, my YouTube channel is a place that you can graze and browse. I give everything for free. I have over a million views now and they're growing fast. I do interviews all around the world with, with experts and all of them have something to offer. So you could graze through that. Um, I think I've also given the Widowmaker movie on the calcification scan is free to watch now. So you can Google my name and Widowmaker and find that's a fascinating movie, yeah. which is big budget, you know, with, with uh, Gillian Anderson narrates it. It's top class, fascinating story of intrigue. Um, and I guess uh, Dr. Jeff, uh, Denver's diet doctor, his website also has a lot of links to really good information. Um, so that's just some thoughts on links, but I guess the show notes as well can have a few links in there. Yeah, absolutely. Well, uh, this has been, this has been almost an hour. So this has been a great interview. Wow. Um, well, congratulations on your book. It's great. And congratulations on your million views on YouTube. I was looking through some of your videos and yeah, you have some high, high viewing numbers. So congratulations on that. Thanks for that, Dan. Yeah, should we keep, it's all, all to save the people. There's no real financial interest in books or this. It's, uh, it's genuinely kind of philanthropy, to be honest. It sounds corny, but it's true. Yeah, that's awesome. Well, Ivor, thank you so much for sharing everything today and uh, good luck on your book launch. And where can they find your book, actually? Oh, of course. So we don't have an Eat Rich Live Long website, but uh, you just Google that, you'll get Amazon dot com dot ca dot co dot uk so all over the world you can get an amazon it's also in costco for the last few weeks it's in costco in the us and should be in barnes and noble and you know i heard it came out on on ibooks recently someone mentioned that i didn't know but it came out in some kind of ibook format yeah i i just googled it right before we talked and yeah amazon barnes and noble and yeah it came up on itunes so it's it's there yeah so uh you can buy it anywhere. <laughs> right. So all five star reviews, Bar, there's one vegan guy, uh, no disrespect to him, but he's the one, one star review. And I think you should read that one for fun. <laughs> yeah. There's always, there's always a one star. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Has to, has to be there. Very good. All right. I've, thank you so much for being on the show today. This has been a great interview. I very much appreciate it. No, thanks a lot, Dan. Really appreciate being on and thanks a lot. Good Thank luck. You.
Yeah, thank you. Thank you for being with us today, and we hope that you are on the road to your successful low-carb lifestyle. Become a leader in your health and a leader in life. Check us out at www.thelowcarbleader.com. And remember to join Dan again next time on the Low Carb Leader Podcast.